Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are in the Gospel of John. We are going to be looking specifically today at verses 18 through 34. We'll see how far we get. 18 through 34 of the Gospel of John. Again, why did John write his Gospel? I'm going to say it every time we're in the Gospel of John so that we know it. In in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he gives us the reason. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, life that is abundant, life that is filled with joy, life that is filled with purpose, life that looks like you're sacrificing yourself for others, but it is a good life that God is calling us to. And what we find in the Gospel of John in chapter 1 is we are going to be looking at John the Baptist, John the Baptist today, and we're going to be reading from, um, again, from verse, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 19, and we'll go all the way to the end of 34. So, hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. And we all say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Pray with me as we, as we begin thinking about this. Father in heaven, as we enter into um, your word, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it. Father, that we would not um, be so prideful to think that we handle the word of God. But Father, I pray that the word of God would handle us. Father, um, give me clarity of thought lucidity of speech, so that I might proclaim faithfully your word. And Father, for those who are listening, Holy Spirit, work in them to keep them alert and attentive and hungry and expectant for all that your word calls us to. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.
So here's what we have with us today is John the Baptist. And I got to say, John is a weird guy. Just, you know that, right? I mean, he wore funny clothes. You know, he had a belt and he, and he, and he ate this weird elimination diet of like locust and wild honey. You know, and so when you see John in the scriptures, you're looking around like, this is a peculiar individual. And yet he was called by God to be the forerunner of Jesus. And so as John is out there in the midst of the, the wilderness and, and he is you know, giving uh, and baptizing and calling people to repentance, you know, he's essentially becoming a little bit of a spectacle himself. Again, weird guy, peculiar man. You know, weird diet, and yet he's telling people to repent and believe, repent and turn away. And so the Jews, and again, the Pharisees, the Pharisees knew more about the Bible than anyone, and yet they missed Jesus more than anyone else as well. They knew the most, and they missed the most. That's who the Pharisees were. So they call out and say, hey, you guys need to go figure out who John the Baptist is, because here's the deal. If you go to your Old Testament Go right before the, the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, go over there. There's this little book called Malachi. And at the very end of Malachi, here's what we find. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament in your Bibles, at the very end of Malachi, here's what we read. In verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, those are the last words of the Lord. We find that those are the last things recorded by God to his people, and then he is silent for 400 years. So if you're a Pharisee or you know, if you're a part of the ruling class, if you're a Jew, you're thinking, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're waiting expectantly, knowing that the Messiah will, will be um, preceded by this Elijah, this prophet who will come. And this prophet, as we think about, um, let me just turn over to Zechariah uh, 13, 1. Let me just read that to you. Zechariah prophesying about the coming day of the Lord. He says this about this. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. From sin and uncleanness. So there's, there will be this man who comes, and he will bring about this washing, this baptism. And so they're, they're seeing John come, and again, he's a, he's a funny guy. And they go to him and they say, Who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. He says, well, are you Elijah? And he goes, no, I'm not Elijah. He says, well, are you the prophet? And that was a prophet that was foretold back in Deuteronomy 18 by the prophet Moses that there would be one who would arise similar to Moses that would come and lead his people. So there's like, okay, so are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? Meaning the one that was prophesied about or spoken about in Deuteronomy 18. And he says, no, I am not those people. And so he says, who are you? Now, when we look at the Gospel of John, as, uh, when we, we come back here, there are certain things that we see that are significant. In verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? 
And he confessed and did not deny. And he said, again, these things, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the prophet. But he did say this. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And I can't help but think about that from Isaiah chapter 40. And many of you uh, are thinking about Handel's Messiah right now. You know, every valley. I'm not even going to sing it. I could sing it, but this microphone doesn't work that way. And so if I had a really good microphone, I could probably sing it. It'd be really good, but I can't do it right now. You know, and the crooked ways will be made straight. And that he will come and he will, he will be the, the precursor for when Jesus comes. And yet, when we think about John the Baptist, here's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's interesting. John doesn't even know that he's Elijah, even though Jesus looks at him and says, the one who they spoke about in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that's him. John was the one in the spirit of Elijah. Now, John didn't know that. And again, John comes and John has um, this way about him to the point where people are asking this question. I think this is a, a pivotal question for him. He says, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Well, this is an interesting question. Who are you? Because again, you know, I mean, John was a peculiar individual. And he would probably have fit in best in Lawrence, probably around the end of May at the Busker Festival at the end of May down on Mass Street. You're like, well, he's got to have an act, right? I mean, he, he dresses funny, he eats funny, he's got to have something going on. But the question became, who are you? And I think that that is a, a pivotal question in the lives of every, every one of us. Because the world should be looking at us and they should come and say, who are you? You are different than the world. There's something about you that is different. And so every one of us in every relationship, whether it's at your work or, you know, at home or among your family members, they should come and they should say the question, who are you? Now, let me give you some examples of of ways that we can live, that people around us will actually ask us the question, who are you? First, if you want people to, to question you and say, who are you? If you want to be different than the world because you believe in Jesus, radically different, not, not the bumper stickers on cars or anything like that, right? Here's a way. How about power? How about if those of you who have power, those of you who are in leadership, you know, rather than taking all of the credit, how do you, in the midst of your, your leadership, in the midst of whatever power you have, how do you sink low to raise up everybody else ab- ab- um, above you? How do you do that? How do you stand in the midst of, of self-sacrifice in the midst of a leadership position? That is countercultural. I've seen people say things like, you know, I, I had a great idea, and you know what happened was my boss took the credit for that. 
And then I've heard other people say, you know, I have a great boss because every time I have a, uh, every time I have a good idea, he always gives me the credit. And every time I have a difficult or a hard time, he always protects me. There's something about him that's different. What is it? Now, I'm not saying that um, all great bosses are like that, but I'm saying that, you know, when we think about positions of power in this world, are we using positions of power and influence to actually raise others up and to serve rather than to be served. That is different, and that will cause other people to say, why do you do that? Who are you? Another one, money. How do you give your money? You know, how do we give our money and so that we're not just tipping to a charity, but maybe we're actually tithing. Or when you think about money, let's say somebody who has a lot of money and they give most of their money away and they give it maybe to a rescue mission or they give it to the church and people around them, other wealthy people are like, why are you doing that? Why do you live below your means? People will come up and ask you whether it's regarding power or whether it's regarding money. They will say, why do you give what you give away? Why are you driving that old car? Why are you doing the things that you do rather than pursuing what the world says is most important? Power and money are two ways that you can see how people are different. And people will ask you, who are you? I'm just giving you some, some rock solid examples here. Here's another one. How about complaining, or rather, not complaining. You know, there's a, um, the Greek word for complaining, I don't know if you guys know this or not, the Greek word for complaining, it actually is translated Twitter. That's what it is, it's Twitter. You know, I didn't know that for a long time, but I just found that out, right? You know, that's pretty much what Twitter is for, right? We just want to complain and complain and complain about what's going on around us, right? And we want all of our people to follow us and, and hear what we're complaining and get everybody worked up and just more complaining, more complaining, more complaining. That's what we have, all right? To be countercultural, for people to ask who you are, think about this. From a jail cell in Philippi, um, we, we read this, these words that Paul, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's what he says. And then he says, in the midst of that, if you do things without grumbling or complaining, this is who you are. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In the midst of not complaining or grumbling, about your life or about what's going on, what happens is you shine like lights in the world. Here's here's how I see this happening. When there's a group of guys sitting around the water cooler and they begin to talk about how difficult their marriages are, they never talk about their parts of doing in their marriage, like how bad they are, right? They're always saying like how difficult their wives are. How about being countercultural and saying, you know what, I love my wife. I actually am, am sort of a knucklehead. I'm so glad that my wife loves me despite all of my flaws and foibles. Why don't we take responsibility and not grumble and complain about our spouse, but actually uplift them? I tell you what, that's counter cultural. And when we do that, we shine as lights in the world. And people will ask you, who are you? Who are you that you love your wife after 25 years? Who are you that you pray for your children and have a deep relationship with them? Who are you that you don't use your power and influence to subjugate, but rather to serve? Who are you that you give your money away? Who are you let me give you another one, last one. 
The other way I think about this is we think about in the midst of great stress and turmoil, when everybody is freaking out in the world, we think about this idea of anxiety. And this is a difficult one because we're going to be growing in this a long time. But when everything else is falling apart around us, I think again about Philippians 4, that we are to be anxious about nothing, but through prayer and petition with thanksgiving to God, present your request to God. You're in the midst of illness and suffering. We go, I have hope. I have a hope for eternity. I have a hope that is, that is unending. And I believe in the promises of God. I think about, you know, just a couple of characters in the last, you know, like generation or two. We think about the idea of inner peace, right? This inner peace that we have. And whether it's, you know, a, a silly Seinfeld character saying serenity now, serenity now, you know, trying to get it. And you know that, you know, George Costanza could never have any serenity in his life ever, right? Or we think about um, even... You know, in, in a silly way, we think about like a cartoon movie like Kung Fu Panda where your master Shifu is like just sitting there and this saying, you know, inner peace, inner peace, inner peace. I mean, some of you know that and I'm not advocating for those movies, although they're, it's, it's a pretty funny movie. Um, but where does this inner peace come from, right? This inner peace that we have comes from Jesus, knowing him and loving him. I tell you what, if power, money, complaining and anxiety, if you are doing those things motivated by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, people in your life are going to ask you, who are you? Now, in the midst of this, we see this, this is a testimony uh, about John, but it's not a testimony about him. It's a testimony about Jesus. As a matter of fact, um, when, you, when you look back at John chapter 1, uh, when, we, when we read about verse 6, uh, there's actually this, it highlights the testimony of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So we see that John is, again, the predecessor of Jesus. And what he's doing there is John is saying, first, I am not Jesus. That's the first thing about the testimony that we have. Because when somebody comes to you and they go, man, your life is different. Your marriage is good. Your kids love you. you know, you're not using power, money. and you know, You're not grumbling or complaining. You're not selfish. I mean, people are going to come to you. And there might be parts of you that go, yeah, look at me. I'm pretty great, aren't I? You know? And what John says is, it's not me. I don't give testimony about myself. I want to give testimony about the one that I worship. You see, we will be in a better place when we recognize that we are not the Savior of those that we go to. We're not. We're only pointing in His direction. As a matter of fact, um, it, and it's funny, when you see some of the commercials today, uh, when you see those guys who have those signs that are arrow signs, and they're flipping them around, and they're, you know, they're juggling them around, they're, the guys are really gifted, actually. They should spend more time like studying in school rather than flipping signs, but they still, you know, I mean, they have these signs, and they're pointing to Jesus. All of us are in the similar place that we have these signs, and all of us should be pointing to Jesus, pointing in the direction of Jesus. Now, in the midst of 
pointing in the direction of Jesus. I mean, this is a big deal for John. I mean, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come to John, and they say things like, who are you? I mean, you, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? I mean, this was, this was John's big opportunity, right? I mean, th- this is where John could have taken some credit for himself. I mean, he probably could have gotten a book deal. I mean, he could have been like on The View in the morning talking about his elimination diet. I mean, all of these things John could have done, but he says, no, it's not about me. I'm going to point you to Jesus because that's who's important. He says, so they came to him. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, that question is interesting. Uh, I read a commentator who actually said that in those days, there were Jewish baptisms going on, but what was happening is oftentimes they were Jewish baptisms of Gentiles who wanted to then come into the Jewish faith. So they would sort of wash them or, or sprinkle or pour or wash them clean. And so for the, the Jews who were hearing, not only are Gentiles being baptized, but also um, Jewish people are being baptized. Like, who are you that you would be baptizing Jews? Good Jewish people, why do they need to be cleansed? And John says, basically, you know, repent, all of you. Everyone needs to be cleansed. And they said to him, um, He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, just so you understand where John says, this is where he ranks. You know, in the ancient world, uh, there were no universities, right? There were no universities. And so when you wanted to study, you would attach yourself to a teacher, And you would essentially say, I want to study underneath this teacher. And you would become essentially a servant of his. But one of the things that um, a servant was not actually even, um, that was actually below a servant was to actually clean the feet of the teacher. So you had like the teacher, then servants. And what John is saying is, I'm not even a servant. You have have the one who comes, this light, who is Jesus. I'm not even a servant who can tie, who can, who, I'm not even worthy to, clean his feet or to tie his sandals. He's essentially saying, I'm below, below, below. He is extremely humble in the midst of saying these things about Jesus. And that is a a point for us, is to be humble as we speak about the one who came to save us. But But I love what we see here is that when John then sees, he sees Jesus coming the next day. And he says to him, behold, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, part of the testimony is that you want to deflect anything away from yourself because you're not Jesus and you want to begin to speak words of truth about Jesus. Who is Jesus? The testimony that John was giving was he wanted to bear testimony about the truth of Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in the midst of that, we know that Passover was probably in preparation, and many people think that that's when the lambs were probably around John being driven to the city so that people could actually celebrate the Passover. 
But we also think about this term, the lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And it harkens back to Exodus chapter 12 during the Passover. It was the last plague that Moses used against Pharaoh, that God used Moses against Pharaoh to um, rescue his people out of their slavery and to bring them to the promised land and fulfill his promises that he had given Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And this, this Passover, this last plague, was that a Jewish family would take um, a lamb and they would you know, slaughter the lamb and they would take the blood of the lamb and they would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the frame of the house. Many of you know this story. And as the angel of death would come, he would come and he would see the lamb over the doorways of those homes and the doorways that were marked by the blood of the lamb, he passed over them. But those doorways that did not have the blood of the lamb fell underneath the punishment of God and the firstborn died. See, when John is saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is saying, this is the Passover lamb. The testimony that John has about Jesus is this, is that the world is broken. Because even when it says this, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, So there's some implications and some presuppositions that we see in that statement, right? The sin of the world, meaning that the world has transgressed, missed the mark, it is wayward in its affections towards the Lord. And the only way that the, the world can be reconciled, those in the world who trust and believe in Jesus, is that the blood of Jesus covers over them and washes them. And what we find is that when John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is saying, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now this is interesting because we know that John is actually the cousin of Jesus and that he actually leapt in the womb of his his mother um, when when, um, Mary came to visit uh, Elizabeth. And he says, look, He's not talking about, you know, just temporal. He's talking about infinite greatness. He's saying that Jesus, even though he's my cousin, now I understand that he was before creation and he is the Messiah. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So at this point, John has already baptized Jesus and he has already done these things with Jesus. But when we think about the Lamb of God, Exodus 12, we also think about this idea of the dove. The dove that happens there, the Holy Spirit identifies Jesus as God's Son, the Messiah. Now, I want you to think about why a dove? Well, there's a couple reasons why we see a dove being referenced there. The first of which is that in the creation story, the creation has played an enormous part in the prologue of John's gospel. I think John is still thinking and remembering about Genesis 1 and 2. And in that creation story, you remember when the earth was without form and empty, God begins to mold it and shape it, and he sends his spirit as a bird to hover and brood over the waters. And as the voice crying in the wilderness, proclaiming the one who is coming to restore all things, what a beautiful way to describe the Holy Spirit as the dove who broods over the waters. Or how about the flood story? 
when God's judgment was upon the earth in the days of Noah. What did Noah send out? And what came back with a, an olive branch at the end of the flood, after the end of the judgment? So in the sense of the dove represents this, this restoration, this, this promise of God that, that one would come and he would end the wrath of God being poured out. Now, I love that, and I think that we should um, even remember that in this way, is that our testimony um, needs to be that Jesus takes away the sins of the world, but Jesus also brings with him the comforter, and he is the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit that would come and be poured out upon his people. By by the way, let me just say this for a second. Um, One of the things that I love about baptism, and we were supposed to have a baptism today, we couldn't, um, unfortunately the little guy um, got sick, but he's doing well. Um, But one of the images that I love about the idea is that, and I'm not going to do it, um, because I don't want anybody to baptize, but when I take this and I pour it, that symbolizes the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the individual, or the need for a child to have the Holy Spirit poured out upon him. You know, it's, it's a wonderful picture of baptism when we pour, sprinkle, and sort of, you know, allow that image to sink into what we believe. It's a wonderful picture, and as we think about, you know, Zechariah 13.1, as we think about the washing and the cleansing that we need, it is a picture of baptism. Let me, let me conclude in this way. Um, we are called to give a testimony for Jesus. We are called to deflect all honor and glory away from ourselves. So when somebody asks, who are you? We say, it's not about me. Let me introduce you to one who will change your life. Let me introduce you to Jesus. And then I think that we're also called to explain how does one accept Jesus? How do you, how do you receive Jesus? You see, it's, it's not just enough to just do things Christians do, I think that we're actually supposed to speak words of gospel truth and testimony to the world around us. You know, I've heard people say, share the gospel and sometimes use words. That's true, right? But we're to share the gospel and use words because how can they believe unless they hear? You know, how do we bring and present the gospel? We say, all you have to do is trust and believe. Have you, ever, have you ever prayed the prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner, Lord, save me? There's a story of a, of a uh, it's, a, it's a story back in the 1700s of a man who actually um, was drunk and he was, it was early in the morning and he was staggering home and he didn't know where he was going and he had sort of lost his way on the streets of London. And in the midst of finding um, a, a passerby, he, he grabs onto him and he says, sir, can you tell me where I'm supposed to go home? Or no, he says, sir, can you tell me where I'm going? And the man looks at him and goes, to ruin. And then he he leaves him. Well, what happened was when that guy woke up the next day and he thought about that interaction with that man, he goes, to ruin, to ruin. And he began to evaluate his life. It was a two-word sermon to this guy who was drunk, staggering on his way home and, and and saying, to ruin he actually understood, I need help. And so he found his way into a church and he found his way to somebody who could say, no, the way out of ruin 
is the pathway of Jesus. Because Jesus takes away all of your sins. And Jesus can begin to transform your life. And it was, it was two words, but it was said with compassion, full of grace and truth. Where am I headed? To ruin. I mean, we're called to be a living testimony, a living sacrifice. By the way, I'm, I'm so excited that the Smiths are here. I was talking with um, Matt Smith this week. And one of the things that I love is, like, I mean, and he's excited about this. Like, he said, the only electricity we will have will be one solar panel running one outlet or maybe two outlets that goes into our home in this tribal area of Chad. And I'm like, well, how are you going to learn the language? I mean, again, and, and so here's, here's the thing that just blows me away by the Smiths, right? Uh, one is that Matt says, I'm not very good at languages, but I'm trying real hard. And then he says this. He says, he was in France to learn French, right? So I'm like, well, they must speak French in Chad, right? He goes, no, they don't speak French in Chad. So they, they kind of speak French, but we're going to go to the capital city so that from English to French, I can learn um, Chad Arabic. So if I'm, I'm learning Chad Arabic through the French that I know from the English that I started with. So from English to French to Chad Arabic. And I'm like, okay, great. So then you're going to go to the tribes and you're going to speak Chad Arabic to them. He goes, well, kind of, but I need to learn their language, which most of them can speak Chad Arabic, but I need to learn their language so that I can actually bring the gospel message to them. And I'm like, so you got to learn French to learn Chad Arabic in order to learn you know, their tribal language where you're going to be, and you're going to be living in a mud hut with one solar-powered, you know, outlet going on in your family, right? And he goes, yep, that's about it. And he goes, and by the way, I don't really like hot weather. I don't know if you know this or not, but Chad is a hot place, right? But it's encouraging, it's encouraging to see people say, but there are people out there who don't know the gospel message. They've never heard the name Jesus. They are lost in their sins. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that there is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and it is Jesus and in him alone. My hope and prayer for all of us is that we would be missionaries as we walk out those doors. Praise the Lord. You don't have to learn French to learn Chad Arabic, to learn something else, something else, right? We actually get to bring the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. We get to bear witness with our lives and with our lips to say that Jesus is better. And some of you may have to give up some things in order to follow Jesus and to to give his message away to others, right? You may have to give give up some things, right? But when you get to heaven... You will never say, as you look upon the face of Jesus, I sacrificed too much for you. I gave away too much for all I have. You will never say that in heaven. I pray, Lord, let's just pray. Father, help us. Help us to bear witness of the truth of the gospel. Help us to love Jesus more than we love the world. Father, help us to take the words of Christ, the words of Jesus to those who are suffering and hurting and dying in their sins. Father, would you help us? Grow in us a great love for you.
and a love for the lost. Help us, Father. Transform us by the power of the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.